You're listening to episode 44 of In Film We Trust. I'm Wayne. I'm Liam. A weekly podcast where we discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film, from the obscure to the mainstream. And now, on with the show. What would you do if you stumbled upon a large sum of unattended money? Keep it? Hide it? Donate it? Spend it? Maybe several of these things? That's the conundrum facing the characters in this week's episode. Plagued by greed, suspicion and distrust, they try to keep their secret under wraps. But before long, people are dying, questions are being asked, and it becomes clear that their simple plan might not be so simple after all. This week we venture out to the snowy plains of Minnesota, where a duffel bag full of money will change the lives of three ordinary residents, but certainly not in the way they would have hoped. (sighs) That's the sound of contentment. (laughs) Our second episode back from our short hiatus. I've had more caffeine this afternoon (laughs) to stun a small albatross. (laughs) How many cups have you had? (laughs) Uh, Energy drink, two cappuccinos, coffee. Yeah, I had a single. I had a single cup of coffee just to you know get me going. I usually have run about lunchtime just to perk us up for the afternoon. It's also during the week. Yeah. We've somehow managed to sync up in our ske- uh, in our work schedules, when where we have the a day off on the same day. How fortuitous! Miraculous, some may say. And finally, finally, we have got round to exploring the works, the work of Sam Raimi. You think he's one of those directors that a lot of podcasters on films would kind of inevitably get around to? One of those, because he does cover a lot of genres, Sam Raimi, so he is kind of almost an all-encompassing filmmaker, you could say. I think so, and if anybody guessed which film we'd be covering by Sam Raimi, I think this would be a spanner in the works. I don't think they would have gone for this. I think they would have assumed we'd be doing The Evil Dead, Army of Darkness, Crime Wave, or something more culty. But, you know, this is a major studio release from Sam Raimi. Not that we don't love those other films, because we do. I love a lot of Sam Raimi films. But for this one, Raimi himself even said this was his most conventional film. I think a lot of people have that opinion, too. It is very conventional. But he started off, Wayne, slapstick. Yeah. Slapstick was his avenue into the film business, so to speak, especially the Three Stooges. Yeah. And you can see that a lot. In even the Evil Dead Two, exactly. that slapstick, you know, physical humor, that blend of horror comedy, which he started off with Evil Dead, and I'd say I'd argue he explored further with Army of Darkness. I think Army of Darkness lent way more into the slapstick. I think so, but look, if somebody had said to me um, the Evil Dead was Sam Raimi's first feature film, I'd said okay, I believe that. No way, it's Murder from 1977, filmed in college. That was his first film. That makes sense because do a lot of not a lot of filmmakers start in college just kind of honing their craft because you can teach people the theory, you can teach them techniques, but really you just need to get a camera, go out there, and you just need to film something. Even if it's crap, at least you learn from it. Can you remember in the two thousands when Sam Raimi released Drag Me to Hell? Yes. Great film. And they were saying, look, it's a return to his evil deadness. Mm-hmm. And there's this, you know, this theory, or not theory, there's this idea that Sam Raimi is a horror director. But if you look at his filmography, apart from The Evil Dead, Army Darkness, I'm throwing that in there also, it's the same, you know, world. 
A lot of his films aren't actually horror. They're not. I think Sam Raimi has kind of the John Carpenter thing where I don't think Carpenter necessarily meant to go into horror, but of course he had his big hits with things like Halloween and things like The Fog and The Thing. He was kind of pigeonholed as the horror director. Sam Raimi had the same thing, but you look at his filmography, he'll make a film over here, Little Independent, then he'll make something like Spider-Man, which is way over here. Because if you think, right, we've got Evil Dead 1, 2, Army of Darkness, Evil Dead 3, essentially. So between them, we've got like films like crime wave yeah which was wayne importantly do you know who co-wrote uh, crime wave uh, who the coen brothers coen brothers and here's a little factoid in sam raimi's world there's scott spiegel who would direct intruder for example he is within sam raimi's world akin to bruce campbell mm. and here is a household now listen to this Wayne. <laughs> in the same household when they moved to la especially scott spiegel who works a lot with sam raimi they all live together. These names, Wayne. Scott Spiegel. Yeah. Sam Raimi. The Coen brothers. <laughs> Holly Hunter and Francis McDormand all lived in the same household together. It makes sense that the Coen brothers and Francis McDormand all live together. But then you throw those other ones into the mix as well. There's a heady mix. <laughs> that is a lot of wacky-do shit going on it is, there. It's like when you hear that like wrestlers or MMA fighters, a lot of them live together. But imagine <laughs> just the ideas that were being thrown around in those rooms. Like When you think of the Coen brothers, how quirky mm. those films are, and Sam Raimi's as well, just what the thought process must have been there, just the gestation of ideas must have been fascinating. Well, as I said, the Coen brothers would co-write Crime Wave. Yeah. Sam Raimi would be one of the co-writers of the Hudsucker Proxy for the Coen brothers. So you're getting this blending of the worlds. And, you know, as far as pulpy as Sam Raimi is, the Coen brothers are somewhat pulpy themselves. They're still working within genre. Definitely. Well, things like Raising Arizona, for example, exactly. are very specific. And then you have like your No Country for Old Men's. That taking the classic cliches the classic concepts of the genres and very much subverting them that's basically what they've done throughout their whole career the Coen brothers and you know what we like to do Wayne this whole six this whole six degrees of separation type thing Scott Spiegel he introduced Quentin Tarantino to Lawrence Bender who would go on to produce Reservoir Dogs yes and Pulp Fiction as well exactly yeah and I think he actually appeared in Pulp Fiction he had a cameo I think but it's one of the most prominent names just Lawrence Bender in the credits so Again, fortuitous circumstances. So let's talk, right, Sam Raimi. What's it, what would you say are some of his tropes? He's a very in, ingenious director. For example, in Evil Dead, because we're on such a limited budget with Evil Dead, for to replicate a steady cam, they'd essentially just pin a handheld or a small camera to a plank of wood. <laughs> somebody would be holding it on the left, somebody would be holding it on the right, and that way they were acting as a stabilizer. That's how you got them shots of the camera as the spirit or whatever you want to say going through the woods then brushed scenes and it worked so well We've made this point before when we talked spoke about El Mariachi. Right. You got Robert Rodriguez working on a budget of pretty much nothing. There's scenes where it looks like maybe a steady cam shot, but it's him being was it pushed in like a hospital exactly. wheelchair. So you have to get those shots somehow, but it's showing how ingenious he is able to work in a budget just kind of DIY filmmaking. Fast zooms as well. Exactly. Fast zooms. He's a very pulpy filmmaker. And I can see how he naturally segued into the superhero world, for example, Spider-Man. With the more dynamic filmmaking, right. the kind of quick cuts and filming cities from uh, kind of wide-angle lenses. It's interesting how his experience in films like Evil Dead, let's say Hudsucker Proxy, how it did kind of lend itself to the superhero genre. But even when he does superhero films, because he recently did Doctor Strange, yeah. he even there was a lot of horror elements in that as well. It's like <laughs> he does like to throw his... I don't know if you've seen that, but he does like to throw his horror elements in. It's like these interdimensional horror beings coming from from other dimensions, how he likes to inject those into 
into his narrative. Well, his first foray, I would say, could you remember Darkman? Yes, Darkman. Starred Liam Neeson. It was okay. I mean, it's a genre I'm not particularly fond of, but you could see his craft working its way into the genre. It did look like very much a Sam Raimi kind of film. But then again, as we've asked, what is a Sam Raimi film? I think he's, I wouldn't say a master of all genres, but he is a man who doesn't like to be pigeonholed into one of them. He does like to explore other ones, and he can take techniques from one and lend them to another. He works within a large span of genres, but he always, I'd say, brings his own pulp aesthetic for the most part. And, you know, we're on about tropes, Wayne. Here is one of the the funniest ones (laughs) I can think of, right? It's not really a trope, but in The Evil Dead... Bruce Campbell is driving that car. It's an iconic car. It's the 1973 Oldsmobile Delta 33, referred to as the classic. (laughs) I think it was Sam Raimi's own car at the time. But did you know that appears in almost every single film Sam Raimi has made? But here is the funniest little tidbit, right? You know his film The Quick and the Dead, set in the Wild West? It was even in that. But of course, there was no cars there, Wade. There was no cars. So how do we get around this? Well, it was disguised under a tarp as a wagon. All right. Do you think someone said something like, "I'm going to put my, uh, I'm going to put my classic in there, uh, Sam"? There was no cars back then. Oh, we'll find something. So you're saying you're telling me this Oldsmobile, this classic, that is the ultimate long-running Sam Raimi Easter egg. Exactly. You have to find that. It's in this film. It could be. You know what's annoying now? Every time I watch a Sam Raimi film now, I'm going to spend the whole time looking for an Oldsmobile. You're looking for the classic. (laughs) I'm looking for his classic. Right, so also, this is Sam Raimi's first time at an adaptation. Yes. Scott B. Smith. Uh, American author who's not written a lot of stuff. I don't think he's not like a big household name or anything. I've read two of his books, A Simple Plan and The Ruins. Love both of them. Very, like, more than a decade apart. He's written a few TV shows, things here and there. He's written... The Ruins, uh, Siberia, The Burnt Orange Heresy. Really? I haven't seen those second two. I've seen his adaptation of The Ruins. Much like A Simple Plan, he wrote the book and he wrote the adaptation. Haven't seen the other two. Kind of interested to, though. Well, interestingly, this one specifically, A Simple Plan, the Scott B. Smith story, started as a short story in the New Yorker magazine. From there, it, it you know it made its way to a novel. And from it being a novel, it found its way into the hands of director Mike Nichols. Mike Nichols, the guy who brought us The Graduate, brought us Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, a very accomplished filmmaker. Legend. He bought it for his own company. He worked on that for a long time, but it fell through, like a lot of things in the film business do. Ben Stiller picked that up. Mm-hmm. He worked on it, the script with Scott B. Smith, for nine months. <laughs> and now here is a little bit I have got for you, Wayne, that I know you're going to enjoy, okay? We have John Dahl, director of Red Rock West and The Last Seduction, two neo-noirs of the 90s. But interestingly, Wayne, John Dahl, do you know who you wanted to star in this film? Nick fucking Cage. In right, a, okay, so why didn't we get that version there's an then? Ulterior, <laughs> there's an ulterior reality going on where Nick Cage is Hank. I know you're going to prefer that one. Probably, yeah. No, I would have preferred if uh, if Nick Cage had played all three of the main characters. But you know that. Yes. I'm pretty sure the listeners know that at this point. We all know you're fond <laughs> into Nick Cage, Wayne. Would have been a very, very different film. But eventually that fucking fell through. <laughs> John Borman, The Deliverance. Bloody hell. He kind of shaped this and moulded it because he was the one who was on it for a while. He hired John Paxton and Billy Bob Thornton. Mm. He fell through fucking Sam Raimi steps in. 
Bloody hell, this has been through so many director's hands. You think a lot of people don't really think of Ben Stiller as a director. No more people think of him as an actor. But then again, he did... Reality Bites. Yes, he did Reality Bites. Tropic Thunder was one he did. The Cable Guy. He did Dodgeball as well. So he does have you know directorial credits. He's got directorial pedigree. But it would have felt weird him directing this kind of film. It does feel very much outside of his wheelhouse. And I like Tropic Thunder. I like Tropic Thunder as well. It would have been a different film with Ben Stiller. Would have been closer to like Cable Guy. Because I know that was kind of slated when it came out because it was mainly because it wasn't a Jim Carrey film people were expecting it wasn't Dumb and Dumber it wasn't The Mask it wasn't Ace Ventura Cable Guy's good I liked Cable Guy I really enjoyed Cable Guy a a lot more than most people did dark subversive exactly brought something else to you know uh, Jim Carrey's Exactly, a very different film as well because we're talking about a stalker film rather than a straight-up comedy. The comedy is almost from the uncomfortableness of it, almost kind of like a field in England was. The realism of the situation kind of propels the humour. Because Judd Apatow produced that, and I think I think that's where he met Leslie Mann, because she is in that film also. She is there. She plays like his. Uh, she plays Matthew Broderick's girlfriend, on-off kind of girlfriend in that. Yes, film. and I'm sure that's where they met. But as we're on about adaptations, when this the in the book. A simple plan. It takes place in Ohio. Yeah. And for the film, it's mo- we're moved to Minnesota. Do you think a possible reason for that is, I know that when Sam Raimi was making this, he was getting kind of tips about it from the Coen brothers, mm-hmm. who discussed our yes. friends, getting ideas because they did Fargo, obviously, which took place around about that where, that area. I think they were giving them advice on how to do like snow cinematography because it's very, very different to filming on, say, just gravel roads and whatnot. Right, because it did take... It's a 55-day shoot... And the aesthetic is key to this film, because as mm. we're saying, you know, Sam Raimi is, he's paired back on this. It's a completely different film to what we're used to from him in many ways. And the cinematography plays a massive, massive part in this film. The DP of this film is Alar Cavillo. And this was only a second feature film after 1988 Da, starring Martin Sheen. Okay, then. So he didn't have much experience. Did a great job, though, I have to say. Because he, he was mainly known for his TV work. He'd done the HBO film Gotti, and I think that was nominated for a Golden yeah. Globe. Well, speaking of being kind of paired back, Raimi himself said, this is a change of pace for me because the film is not about shots, but the performances within the frame. I wanted the camera work to be invisible right. and just allow the actors to tell this very thrilling story. For me, the key word there, invisible. The best way I could describe the directing of this film is non-intrusive. You know how you have your films where the camera it's big swings and there's mm-hmm. big zooms like with the evil dead that zoom in at yes, the end yes. things like that it doesn't feel like that at all in this film it does feel like Remy is setting the camera kind of taking a step back and just allowing things to play out in front of him it almost feels like he's not directing it feels more naturalistic it's almost slice of life yeah it's still life wayne you're imagining these people are real, and I think that is what the film is going for, because you're supposed to identify with the characters. But, you know, as we said, this film it was filmed in Minnesota, but because in 1998 there was the Il Nino weather event, which was unusually hot, yeah. so the production had to be moved from Delano, and I think that's in Minnesota, to Ashland, Wisconsin, because they needed more snow. I've heard of films like that before when they tried to film in the snow, but I think It's a Wonderful Life had that problem. It was supposed to to be winter but there was a massive heat wave you look at jimmy stewart he's sweating in half of the scenes because it was so <laughs> bloody hot so inconvenient but it's cool that they moved it and they got it filmed in a different place because 
being set in Minnesota, I think it would have invited a lot more comparisons with the Coen Brothers Fargo. But you know how we were discussing this film is more about real people than maybe Sam Raimi is accustomed to. The DP had got his hands on the script and he said, I got so excited that I called my agent at home and made him arrange a meeting with Sam Raimi. I love character-driven stories. I like the fact that there's so many different levels to a simple plan. There is a great double arc between Hank and Jacob that really brings depth to the film. I'm attracted to projects that actually say something and deal with real people and real emotions. Mm. Well, interesting, the book, on the first page of the book, it opens with a quote from Mary Wollstonecraft, who is uh, who is an author, and the quote is, no man chooses evil because it is evil. He only mistakes it for happiness, the good he seeks. So it feels like this movie is working on a very human level. It's very human aims, human attributes, human aspects. And this is brought out with the cinematography because there was a purposefully... You know, they're pairing back even the colouring of the film. It's almost black and white. And that is a, and that is an important thematic thing to this film. It's monochromatic, almost, the cinematography. They even cut vegetation and trees down to make the image more stark than it actually would be. And in the daylight, we're used to, you know, the beauty of snow. But this is very overexposed. It's very white. It's not usually what you would see in a romanticised snowy scenery. And even in the daylight, they used no external lights to light a scene. It's all done through natural lighting. Exactly. It feels like it was given the impression of a landscape where the people who live there are sick of the snow. The snow, like you say, is not romanticised. The snow is more of an inconvenience. We'll see them trudging through snow. We'll see them having to put like chains on their tyres. So the snow is not meant to be romantic. The snow is just there as part of the landscape, as part of everybody's everyday lives. But as you quoted that, author when you're the buzzwords evil happiness they don't take it for the easy way tell me wade what is this story about well it's actually based believe it or not i didn't even know this till doing research on jeffrey chaucer's one of his canterbury tales called the pardoner's tale the basic plot of that is you have three men who find treasure under a tree they don't want to leave it of course because they don't trust each other so they stay with it till nightfall but out of greed they all end up killing each other so that's essentially what this is. It's a modern-day version of the Chaucer's of Chaucer's uh, Pardoner's Tale. So you have three individuals, and what they do is they find in the middle of this snowy landscape a plane, a plane which has crashed. Inside it, they find a dead pilot, and they find a duffel bag which has four point four million dollars in one hundred dollar bills in it. And this happens very early on. It's almost like we don't get that much of an introduction to what the characters are really like. It's this event is like the impetus. This is what reveals all about them. This is what draws out their personality, like the real personalities, I think. That's the beauty, Wayne. It's like the, this title of the film, A Simple Plan. It's a simple tale. It's a morality play, pretty much. And we, our main characters, our main players is Hank, played by Bill Paxton. His pregnant wife, Sarah, pra- played by Bridget Fonda. We have Jacob, played by Billy Bob Thornton. And we've got Lou. Fucking Lou. Lou. Who the hell is Lou? Played by Brent Briscoe. Brent Briscoe. One of those character actors who just kind of pops up now and then. Sadly passed away now, but he did just kind of pop oh, up in dead? things. Like, yeah, he popped up in this and he was in The Green Mile. He was in The Dark Knight Rises very briefly at the beginning. Really? Can I just highlight the number of Bs in this cast? Bill Paxton, Bridget Fonda, Billy Bob Thornton, Brent Briscoe. What's going on here? Does Billy Bob count for two? <laughs> he does count for two. He does. It's like, it's like we'll cast on the basis of where, you're like, where your name falls in the alphabet. 
But these are our three characters. We have the ha- yeah, Hank, we have Jacob, we have Lou. Hank and Jacob are brothers. Pretty much couldn't be any different. The polar opposites. Yes. And Hank is a bookmaker uh, feed mill. And I'm, I'm getting the impression this film is drawn as Hank and Jacob are very different people. They are brothers, as we've stated, but they come from a family of farmers. Yes? Yes. And I'm guessing... Hank is the, you know, he's the more educated. He managed to leave town, get a university degree, and for whatever reason, he is back now. Yes. Jacob's the opposite. He's a borderline alcoholic, could you say? I think so, yes. He's an odd job guy. He's not very much in work. He's very much alone. He has his dog, Mary Beth, and he lives in this kind of run-down old house. You could say that Hank and Jacob's lives haven't exactly worked out the way they wanted to, but for totally different reasons. Hank, he goes off and gets his degree. It's noted one of the few people in town to do so, so maybe there's some resentment towards him. Yes, he's a respected member of the community, but then again, Oh, this fancy college boy, etc. Mm-hmm. With Jacob, it feels like because of his because of his failings, he's positioned as kind of a simple minded guy. Is, yeah. Not quite all going on upstairs. Wants to stay close to home. He wants to bring the family's farm back, even though that totally failed. The parents are dead. But they failed for these very kind of different reasons. And you could draw parallels between Jacob Billy Bob Thornton and his character in Sling Blade, mm. which I think is one of the reasons why he was, you know, put in the mill for this role because of his performance in Sling Blade. Because this Sling Blade was only about two years beforehand. Yes. He won the Oscar for Best mm-hmm. Writing. And it did bring him, because he'd been in films before, but it did bring him a lot of international attention. This got him a lot of acclaim as well. I think he was actually nominated for an Oscar for this movie. Was he a supporting actor Oscar? He was nominee? Best Supporting Actor Oscar. He, he plays it very effectively. He does. I like how he didn't. It didn't feel like there was a lot of exaggeration in him. He played it very down to earth, very low, very shy character. But it was very believable. It's a character Billy Bob knows through and through. I wonder if he has had a lot of experience with this in his own life, whether it's you know family members, whether it's the his the, his social environment growing up. There has to be something because he gravitates to these roles so well, and he even you know there's an uh, in Bad Santa. It's a very different role, but he's you know, very much down and out. He's very much beaten down, and he's there's something in him. I suspect that he finds his way into the character's psyche so well. I think so because with Sling Blade, he did a lot of research, even like the voice of the character and even the very peculiar movements of the character. I know he did a lot of research, and I think it's based on people he knew mm. or people around him. I think. The character of Lou. Now, we can all <laughs> say, we. It, I think it's fair to say we all know a Lou. Yes. Someone who is not intending to be antagonistic and confrontational. They just kind of are. He's quite a heavy drinking person. He's a close friend of Jacob's. They're much the same. Very There's much a lot the of similarities apart from Lou has got a wife. Yes. And he's not quite as much of a... He doesn't give off as many loner vibes as no. Jacob. I do have to say, his wife doesn't seem to be his biggest fan, but the only time we see him, his wife is shouting at him. I can't remember the actress who plays his wife's name, but she was also the mother in Freaks and Geeks, and that was such a great show. Such yes. a great show Judd Apatow produced. She didn't play like a similar character there, right? No. No, okay. Very okay. middle-class mother. No. But with Jacob, uh, Lou, he's kind of got like an immaturity. We know he clashes very much with Hank, and I think it's like we mentioned before, because of Hank's almost kind of aloof because he's an educated man he has a kind of educated job he's an accountant like you say and it's almost like he sees that as oh you think you're better than us there's not many missteps in this film Wayne not a lot no but one here, here's a little gripe and I don't know if it's just because you know we have to try and be a bit analytical for this this show but Sarah Hans yes. wife 
She's re it's such a reduced role because in the book I am led to believe it's a very larger role. She has a much expanded role. So in the I'm assuming there's more context to the character, but in this she's very one-dimensional. There's not much to the character, and that's not on Bridget Fonda. It's a very pared-back role. Little aside, Bridget Fonda, the scorer of this film is Danny Elfman, and they are married in real life. They are, yes, yes. Did like the score, just on a little side. Yes, very, did. very good score. We like our digressions, Wayne. We do like it. <laughs> <laughs> Back onto mid yes. parts. But I see what you're saying. She is kind of one note in this film. I'm wondering if it's meant to be... The idea is the introduction of the money into these people's yes. lives does change them very fast. But look, to bring it back to the DP of this film, Cavillo, yeah. he has a great quote about this film. And he says, The film is such a grim, cautionary tale that we wanted it to have a nearly black and white feel to it. Now, he's talking about the aesthetic, but that's also talking about the morality of this film. Because I think it is working as a parable. It is a morality tale. Greed is the root of all evil. Whenever I came up with research, that seemed to be the main idea behind it. Taking good people, maybe not necessarily the best of people, and showing that when you introduce something like this, how quickly it can corrupt them, how quickly it can change them, how quickly it can bring them down. And I think is that's right. And it's also this battle of good and evil that is inherent in every single living person. And it's the forces you try to fight within yourself that, you know, you may want to take the easy route. You may see this thing occur and you're like, oh my God. And then you become blinded by it. Well, we all like to think in a real life situation we come across this this difficult idea this difficult confrontation we like to think we'd be able to handle it well but we've never been in that situation before did you ever see 127 hours yes good yes job. i've met a lot of people who said oh i could never cut my arm off i'm pretty sure he never thought he had to either but necessity what if you had to it's like that idea of the movie alive where the plane crashes yeah. could you eat another human being I don't know. I've never been in a situation which would force me to do that. And I think that's what this movie is working on. These impulses, these deep instincts. When they find the plane, they'll find the money, the immediate, let's spend, let's do this and that. Hank kind of wants to say, no, I know, I'll keep the money. I'll keep it for myself. And Jacob says, you don't trust us? How much would you trust them? Because that's what no, I that's like. The thing. Hank finds the money with these two people, even though one of them is his blood. He doesn't feel like he can trust either of them at all. Which I think speaks to Hank. In many ways, Hank sees himself as a custodian. He sees himself as a custodian of the family's legacy. Mm. But I get the impression he's always tried to detach from that family, whether it was going off to university. And he probably never imagined he'd be coming back to this town, I don't think. I think he thought he was gone for good. Because there's a pivotal scene at the start of this film, which I think speaks to Hank's psyche, right? They're visit it, it, this film takes place in the run-up to New Year. Yeah. And they're going to visit their father's grave, put flowers on it for New Year. And Hank sees, when he's laying flowers, somebody's already put flowers. And Jacob says, oh, I, I came X amount of weeks or so and brought Dad some flowers. And Hank looks so perplexed because this seems an uh, occasion for Hank, something you only do on a special occasion, whether it's a birthday, New Year. Because this is what I'm saying. He's trying to detach himself so much from his family that he doesn't see himself as part of it. He's separate from it. It's not just the fact that... Jacob is the more sentimental of the two. It's the fact he has more attachment. Hank just kind of wants to go off. His ideal life would have been to go off and work in the city in some big fancy job, but he's come back here. He's almost resentful over that. So he's baffled that the fact that Jacob has takes, already yeah, takes so much pride in the love that he had for his family. 
it's quite subversive, okay? We have the two kind of drunks of the town, the two layabouts, okay? We have Hank, who has the, you know, the pretty wife. He has the decent job. He's got the kid on the way. He's very much the respectable middle-class guy on the exterior. But what is subversive, Wayne? And I think it's getting to the heart of this is looks can be deceiving. We are to judge Jacob as untrustworthy. We are to trust to see Lou as untrustworthy. But when it comes down to it, the one the most willing to bend the rules of morality is Hank. And this is what I was getting to before. It's not just Hank. And this is why I think there's a, a little, uh, I don't know if it's misogyny or whatever, right? Mm. With Sarah, because that character is so one-dimensional, her only point in this film is to facilitate the greed of Hank. She is kind of always the one who is edging him towards, take the money, oh, we need it for this reason, oh, we need it for that reason, etc. Hank has these ideas throughout the film. I think Hank is one of the most interesting characters I think Bill Paxton's ever played. We're meant to see him as the good guy, but there are so many things he does throughout the film where you think, wow, would you actually do that? Right. That is a bad thing to do because people die in this film, lies get told. Hank is always thinking of an excuse. How do we cover this up? How do we gloss over this? Or we'll just say this happened. He gives no thought. He pays absolutely no mind to the victims, the families of the victims. As soon as this money comes into his life, it's like the worst thing that could possibly have happened. And like you say, Sarah is almost kind of egging him on do this to Lou, do this to Jacob, just say that to him. It is unfortunate her role was cut down because it does render her more of a... It's a one-dimensional character. A one-dimensional character. In the book, she is fleshed out a lot more. We get to see a lot more of her. But in the film, she is kind of paired back to that one-dimensional character. Because if, even if we get to the idea of why they want the money, Hank and Sarah, right? Sarah has a confrontation with Hank when they already have the money, okay? And she's saying, look, do you think I want to be dining at the same restaurant day uh, for the rest of my life? It's very much a superficial greed, a status symbol, to put it down to that. Jacob, why does he want to have the money? Very sentimental reasons. He wants his dad's farm back. He wants the family farm back. And not only that, he thinks it'll bring him a wife because Jacob is very virginal. He, I think he even states he's never even kissed he a woman. He never kissed by a girl, yeah. The only girl that ever went out with him was at school and it was essentially for a bet, which... It was J a bet. Which Jacob confesses in a very touching scene, I have to say, the way Billy Bob Thornton really underplays it. He even asks Hank during the scene, he says... Do you ever feel evil? Tellingly, Hank doesn't even reply. He just sits in stunned silence. And Jacob says, I do. Because mm. this is after some pretty bad events have also transpired. Right, that bet we're on about in the, from Jacob's youth is some girls, you know, they're teasing him almost. They bet one of their friends, look, will you go out with Jacob for a week, for example? He says, look, he never even kissed her, but at least he got to hold hands with her, which was nice. And one of the things I didn't necessarily catch first time is the girl who goes on the date with him, you know, quote unquote date, mm. is called Mary Beth. Billy Bob, Jacob's dog in this film, is called Mary Beth. Mm. So even that small encounter in his life, the only thing he has, the only you know female interaction he's ever had, has had such an impact, even though it was on a bet, that he's still, to this day, his dog is named Mary Beth. He does have these very sentimental attachments. Like He does feel like he's much more attached to this town than, for example, Hank is. I think that's why Hank almost comes across as kind of bitter and cynical, because he didn't want to be around here. But... 
what you said before, that brings up for me what I believe is the strength of this movie. Probably its greatest strength is its believability. Mm-hmm. How believable the scenarios are. The decisions they make as well. Because how many times have you seen a film where a character makes a decision and you think, no, that's ridiculous. You should not have done that. And it pulls you out of the movie. Here, the decisions are quite horrible. They're reprehensible. But a lot of time I'd think, yeah, in that situation, you could kind of see yourself doing that. None of the decisions they uh, they make, none of the actions they take, feel so out of character. They feel kind of warped, but not totally unrealistic. Well, let's think, to cover their tracks, okay, they get this money, not far on from that. I think, is it a local farmer, possibly? Yes. Sees them going to... The, the tracks are leading to the plane. Jacob sees this. Jacob is questioned about it by this farmer. Jacob panics, hits him over the head with a pipe. Mm. He thinks he's killed him. Hank devises this plan to run his snowmobile off a bridge. But in in enacting this plan, Hank therefore realises that this farmer is not actually dead. He's still breathing. He was just knocked out. So upon learning this, Hank has no qualms. He knows what needs to be done. Hank is single-minded. He has been practical here. There is no obstacle he will not trespass anymore. So he suffocates this farmer to death. He eventually tells Jacob this, whereas Jacob said, you know, he wouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have done that. Because Jacob, I think Jacob would have rather went to jail for, you know, grievous bodily harm, attempted murder, etc., rather than have actively killed somebody. And also with Hank, there's a deep hypocrisy I noticed in his behaviour as well. Because when they have the money on the plane, he says, look, I'll keep the money. That's the only way I'll do it. And he says, don't tell anybody. Jacob does kind of blab to his sheriff. He mentions the word plane, which really puts into motion events later in the film. But Hank says, don't tell anybody. What is the first thing he does? He goes home and tells his wife. He dumps the money out onto the table. Yes. So he says, don't tell anybody. He's the first person to do it. That kind of idea that the people who are most outwardly good are kind of the most inwardly evil. Which is, I think, is what Bill ba- Bill Paxton brings to this. Another actor may have played, uh, you know, more overt, You where it wouldn't be less subtle. Bill Paxton is so likable as an actor. Mm. He's so everyman as an actor. He's relatable as an actor. So when he's bringing this role, Hank, for example... You go along with him to a certain point. You think, okay, in that situation, I would have done the same, X, Y, Z. Nothing is overstayed. In another actor's hands, possibly, you know, your mate Nick Cage, (laughs) would that have been as subtle? Or would you have thought, okay, they're acting so shady, I would have never went along with that. Yes, there would maybe have been more like shouting scenes, but with Paxton, it always feels like he's trying to keep it reasonable, he's trying to kind of keep it down, oh no, we'll do this and we'll do this. He feels like a very human character, as bad as his actions are, it still feels like he's very human, very realistic, what he's doing. It kind of makes me think of, have you ever watched videos like on YouTube or read about it, where it talks about lottery winners, people who won big on the lottery? Yes. A lot of them, you'd think that would be the best thing ever, fantastic. For a lot of them, it was the worst thing ever because they said the money becomes your identity. You get $100 million out of nowhere, it's your identity. And they say it changes their perception of you. You're no longer that friendly person from the shop. You're no longer the helpful person. You're the lottery winner. You're just the person who has money. Oh, can you lend me some money? No. Oh, you were always so nice before. So in a way, when they won the money, I had a thing in the back of my head thinking, you might not really enjoy this. This could actually be terrible. You know, let's set aside the murders and other lies and other things like that. 
it will not be good for your soul, for lack of a better term. Well, that, I think that's what the film is talking of, is, is what happens when you get the unobtainable? Mm. What happens when that becomes obtainable? What do you do? And if you could get the unobtainable, that thing you've always wanted, what would you do to get it? You've given the choice. And what would you do to keep it as well? Because essentially we're, we're led to make those decisions. Would you kill this guy for $4 million? That's essentially what it's saying. I remember reading somewhere recently, someone had put a question. It was a very interesting one. If you were asked to kill somebody and you could never be found out, what's the minimum amount of money you would ask for that? To kill someone, even though there'd be no worry about being found guilty. I know. And what, do you know what fucking disturbed me the most about that is? You said 10 quid. It's nine ninety nine, I believe it was. Well, that's even worse. But don't you think that could reveal so much about a person's character? How much they would want to kill somebody? Because in this film, they're trying to protect this four point four million, which is a pretty decent amount when split four ways. They all want it for kind of different reasons. Obviously, with Hank, his wife's pregnant; he's got a baby on the way. Jacob wants to buy the farm. Lou, guessing he just wants booze. No, no, no. Let's be. Fair to Lou, he may want to. He may want a tipple, Wayne. But uh, he also has back payments on his house, and the house is going to get. You know, the bank will take the house away. He has got payments to make, which puts Lou <laughs> puts Lou in the sense of Jacob. They both are needing the money to maintain, to maintain, to keep. Hank is to move on, to be better, because it's about status with Hank. Whereas the others, you know, here here's what's telling. Okay. When Jacob says he wants the money, he's like, look, I have nowhere to go. If I get the money, I'm going to stay in this town. I want my dad's farm. Hank, what? You can't stay here. You have to go. Mm. Hank just wants it to flee, to become something else. He's, he's, it's about ad- adaptation, to change. J- Jacob doesn't want to change. Jacob, in many ways, you know, we're supposed to look at him. It's like, oh, man, that's, that's it's quite it's pathetic. But he, in, there's a contentment to him. He wants certain things different. You know, he would like a wife, as he stated. He wants his family farm, but he wants to be in his town. He knows what he wants. He is the true everyman. Hank is the guy who would fuck you over. Because even though Hank is portrayed as the most straightforward, the most upright, as the film goes on, what I loved about it, how much more Hank comes across as the villain. Look at what Hank has. He's got a wife. Yes. He's got a nice home. He's got a job. He's a respected member of the community. He's got a baby on the way. But he still wants more. Like, how much is enough? What would what would satiate his appetite? What would he? What what could you give him to stop him wanting more? I know. Aside time, Wayne. Yes. Do you know in that mill where? He's the accountant, Hank. Yeah. Do you know there's a guy who comes in the door and complains? <laughs> yes. That is Bill Paxton's dad. It's his dad. Do you know he didn't even realise he'd been cast until I they were about to shoot the scene? Imagine that, you're just dad just turning up on set. Oh, hey, dad, what are you doing here? Do you know how he got cast, though? He essentially sent a love letter to Sam Raimi saying he loves all his work. Okay, then. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't we just send us a love letter yeah. to Sam Raimi? He'll come on our Do podcast. Do you think could... Um... <laughs> Yes, Sam Raimi, come on. Like Sam Raimi's agent comes into his thing and just dumps on his desk. More love letters. Yeah, yeah more, more love, love letters. letters. You're going to have a lot of casting to do in the future. Fucking Raimi. <laughs> yeah. And the, uh, also, can we talk about like kind of the escalation of the, this film? Done very, very subtly, I feel. Subtly believable, Wayne. There is no twist in this film that is unbelievable. It no. is very practical. You are led to believe that you would make the same decisions and it's step by step by step. There is no massive twists. There's no. loads of twists, but there's no... no massive escalations where you think to yourself okay that's not plausible now and just how it steadily ramps up the tension as well this idea that having this money would be great as the film goes on you very quickly realize it would be just such a miserable experience i bet 
there's so many times they'd wish I'd never found this money in the first place. It was I like the so. worst thing that happened to me. Well, fuck. Lou and his wife especially. Could be worse, Because yeah. that leads probably to the most Sam Raimi-esque scene yeah. is, okay, let's set this up. To catch out Lou. Yeah. To make him not be able to go to the police, for example, and fuck over Hank. Yeah. Hank wants the assurance that he knows he's got something over Lou. And he does this by getting him on tape on a recorder, to say that he killed that guy, mm-hmm. that farmer from earlier. Because Hank knows, Lou now knows that Hank strangled that guy yeah. by Jacob. Jacob said to Lou. And in order to cover this up, to cover Hank's trails, Hank has said, okay, let's get Lou drunk. Mm-hmm. Let's jokingly make him confess on tape. And by doing that, we have the assurance that he can no longer go to the police. He can no longer dock Hank in. So what happens in this drunken altercation is Lou eventually gets to the shotgun. He goes to get his shotgun out and he points it to Hank. Jacob puts his rifle to Lou and says, Luke, everybody just calm down. This doesn't need to occur. Put your guns down and we can just get on with it. We've got the money, etc. Well, it escalates. You know, Lou is very intoxicated at this point. It looks like he's about to kill Hank. But Jacob... Shoots Lou. Okay, so here's the thing. Jacob and Lou have more in common with each other. Definitely, yeah. But there is, because we've explained that Jacob essentially is a stand-up guy and is potentially the most stand-up guy in this film, he eventually, against probably his better judgment, he picks blood over friendship. Do you think that was the right choice for Jacob? I know it seems their easy choice. Like, if we were in that same situation, he's like, it's my brother, of course, but within the morality of this film... But it does feel like Jacob was kind of browbeaten into that decision. I'm I, I couldn't say for sure if he chose the right one. I mean, who was the who had the idea of getting Lou drunk to the confess? It was it was Hank's wife. Yeah. She was the one that actually said it. And Jacob's kind of gone along the plan. It looks like initially, I like how it looks like they're just making fun of Hank. Yeah. It shows that Jacob is not necessarily a stupid no, character. That was very because astute. he very cleverly, because you think, oh, he's totally turned on Hank, but he very cleverly kind of segues into getting this confession right. out of Lou. I don't even think that scene, it's a great scene. It is very, one of the best scenes of this very film. Impactful very impactful Very tense, scene. very shot, edited, directed, paced, extremely well. Very Hitchcocky, I'd say. Yeah, but even as we said about the directing earlier, it doesn't feel very intrusive. No, no. feels like your position is just like another character in the story. No fancy gimmicky camera work or anything. just makes you feel everything that's happening. You feel like you're another character stood there watching these events unfold. Maybe the, the most Raimi-ish scene because after they shoot Lou his wife comes down she looks like she's going to phone the cops she backs off Hank takes her into the kitchen by shotgun she I think she rushes to phone the police doesn't she yes but before she can grab the phone Hank shoots her she blasts off into the yeah. wall that's very <laughs> Ramey-ish that was obviously a wire work that was hell of, that was a hell of a shot yes do you get that much backfire on a shotgun when you shoot a shotgun does somebody fly into a wall I, I think I read somewhere they said if you were going to have that much force that would blast you that far the kick on you would be ridiculous <laughs> so you would go flying the other way it would be double wire work oh that would have been even more Ramey-esque they should have done that she should have flew to the wall Hank should have <laughs> fucked off out the front door he should have like a backflip as he <laughs> yeah. fired the gun very sort of sudden injection of violence and this is where it feels like the film is really going down this very dark path because now people are dying off one of the people who found the money they're dead as well but there's still jacob there it's like hank 
he's really got it in his mind that these people are just holding him back, that Jacob is kind of almost like an impediment to his happiness. So like we, he wants we, it for himself. We've alluded to this money, Wayne. It was found in a downed craft. It's not their recent UFOs, is it? <laughs> is it? Is or it? just been shot down by the government. The government. <laughs> it didn't look like a balloon. <laughs> <laughs> you Listen, never know. This is not going to age the episode at all, is no. it? No. <laughs> People are like, what? What? Who you, what? UFOs? What did we miss back then? Yeah, uh, but, Wayne, whose is the money? Who does it belong to? Well, it turns out it's actually ransom money. Yeah. Which, would that make you feel better for taking it, knowing it's somebody's ransom money? Does it change the equation it's in any criminal way? criminal money. The first thing I'd look for is any kind of marks on it, because now you have like those dye yeah, packs. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you found that, you'd assume it was stolen, like when we did Good Time, how they got covered in all of the, the dye, the dust. But it turns out the person who the money came from, or who was going to, they know about it. They do. And they come to town. Posing. Uh, uh, posing as an FBI yeah. agent. Amusingly, it's played by Gary Cole. I know. The, the douchey boss from Office Space, who's basically a meme now. He's almost more known as a meme than anything else. Fucking douchey Cole. Douchey Cole. Yeah. He's introduced the idea of him coming in. I love this scene where Hank's having his hair cut. Mm. Fantastically done. We see Hank's face. He's having his hair cut. Just sheriff Carl comes in, the sheriff of the town, who Jacob blabbed to about the plane yeah. earlier. We get one shot. Well, Carl comes in, talking to Hank. Hank's very polite. Oh, hey, how are we doing, Carl? Carl says, FBI is going to come in to talk about the money. Just the movement of the camera and the very subtly subtle expression changes on Hank's face. You can see what he's thinking. You can see his just his feelings plummet in that moment. Now, there's a couple of things to unpack there. Right, Hank has killed a man. Yep. He has essentially robbed four million. Yet, does this speak to his psyche? In the midst of all this chaos, he is still gone to a haircut. What does that say about him? Does that demonstrate an odd flippancy with him? Odd flippancy? A convolution, maybe? That Possibly. he thinks it keeps up appearances? Nobody will suspect him? Oh, he came for his haircut. He can't have <laughs> killed somebody in the I've lied to the town to kill a few innocent people, but you know, I want to make sure my hair looks good. But you also <laughs> know what is present in that scene. Mm -hmm. There is an image of a fox. Yes. And it's the fox that opens this film that leads them to the money. Mm. Because they track it to the tr to the plane, they find it. And you know why? I think that could be important in symbolically. Mm. Sometimes in mythology, a fox represents a cunning trickster. Mm, it does, yes. Right? And it's shown when Hank is getting his hair cut. It's in the same shot as him. It's a two shot, pretty much. It's Hank and the fox in the background. The fox leads them to the money at the start. The fox is there also when he's getting his hair cut. Is it saying, is Hank essentially... The cunning trickster of the film. Possibly. Well, he's the one that's coming up with all the schemes. Right. He's coming up with all the plans. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I think it's very deliberate. You have the fox leading to it, and then you have it in the scene. Which makes the point. Does Scott Smith and does Sam Raimi already have their mind made up? Yes, the audience can make their own <laughs> interpretations. But in their mind, for as much as they want to leave it open to interpretation... Do they think that Hank is the ultimate evil of this film? Mm. I wonder. Could be. It could have been the intention all along. Because the idea is, if Hank wasn't positioned as such a good, upright, yeah. upstanding guy at the beginning, this character arc would have been nowhere near as compelling. Mm. If he started off kind of a bottom-of-the-barrel kind of guy, but because he's such a good person who is corrupted and 
torn apart by greed. I think it does feel like he was always meant to be this person, the person who has this arc throughout the film. And we talk symbolism as well. What do we often see gathered around the site of the plane? We see crows. Mm -hmm. Crows which have been historically an indicator, or you could even say a harbinger of death. They have. Also, amusingly, I always love this, what is the name of a group of crows? It's a murder. I do love that. It's one of my favourite pub quiz questions. What's a group of crows called? It's a murder. That's bleak. I I have heard when I read some people speculating, the idea is crows are seen as being, like in the movie The Crow with Brandon Lee, crows are messengers from the other side. So with these crows gathering around this plane when they find the money, I've heard some people speculating that means this crow has come from the other side as a way of saying, stay away from the money. Maybe. Ah, oh, that's 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 insightful. Way. That's that is a, that's an interesting a nice little one. addition. You wouldn't yeah. even think, but it's like, do you not think when it's the way this is filmed because it's filmed up yeah. from the sky, it's deliberately focusing on the crows. It just didn't just happen; they were in the no, shot. No. It focuses on no, them. They they're are, part they are of the shot. They're sitting there watching them essentially. So I think whether it's murder or whether it's talking about a message from the other side, crows a very important, very deliberate inclusion in this story. But where does our trickster FBI agent take them? They take them back to the plane to retrieve the money, Wayne. And this is where we get the not a very standard final confrontation, almost kind of Mexican standoff thing. I really like this. I do like this. I think as well. it's really effective. Essentially, Jacob Hank, the sheriff, and this fake FBI agent, they go out to the money. That guy's wanting to retrieve his money. Hank's there, Jacob's there, the sheriff, and the F- fake FBI agent. <laughs> the would you say gangster? Kind of criminal. Yeah. Just criminal. He's like he's using he's using a false name. So Hank knows this information because his wife in the library, because she's a librarian, has found out that these guys are the ones who that ransom money belongs to, in a sense. So they go off to the plane. Hank knows about it. Jacob knows about it. The only person who doesn't know is the sheriff. And I also think the FBI, the fake FBI agent also knows that Hank knows that he's not legit. Yeah, I like when Hank is brought into Sheriff's office, there's the look between yeah. the fake FBI agent and Hank, a kind of knowing look, like they know that each other is not on the up and up. They know something about each other. The only person who's kept out of the loop here is Carl. He believes this is just the a... sheriff. We'll go to the blame, yeah, the sheriff. So they know something about each other. Carl doesn't know about this. But you would have thought this would have ended on a, a huge, like so let's say, for example, a gunfight. Yes. A confrontation that was elongated. But it doesn't do that way. It's very in the style of this film it's extremely pared back hmm. it's slowly building the tension and when it does come to a confrontation when he's shooting that criminal when hank shoots him it's very quick it's not hit miss hide you know action sequence for 10 minutes no one's jumping through the air firing no. guns at the same time the fake fbi agent is even kind of playing around with hank he's like oh have you ever shot anybody before mm. you ever killed anybody yeah. before I think <laughs> he's testing his metal <laughs> i think hank's like yeah just, i think just so. a couple of people this week actually because <laughs> he obviously feels like hank is not the kind of person who could do this but we know better as the audience because we have seen it exactly. happen and the first person to get shot here is the sheriff the fake FBI agent, the criminal, you know, he gives him a gunshot in the back. Mm. Hank's fidgeting around. He managed to shoot the fake FBI agent. And that's it. What's important here, Wayne? And I think, because I, I think this is why that scene isn't elongated into an action sequences. Because ultimately, that's not what it it's about it's about fraternity mm. because now you have the conundrum if you've got the dead you know quote-unquote fbi agent and you've got the dead sheriff and only jacob and hank are there 
that means one of them are probably going to have been the guilty party. Yeah. You can't have killed the FBI agent. You can't have killed the sheriff without it being one of you two. That's pretty logistical. Because so the, que- the question is, how many deaths can you sweep under the rug before people really start to notice? So what's interesting now is you've got Jacob and you've got Hank. So Jacob knows in his heart of hearts, in order to make this a success, in order for them to get away with it, one of them has to die or at least be injured. But Jacob's like, look, I've had my life. I'm, I'm content. I don't really want to go on, essentially. Just kill me. It'll look like there was a gun battle. You've defended yourself and you're not going to have killed your own brother. It kind of makes sense that Jacob would be the one to decide this because Hank has been the one all the time that's made the excuses, that's tried to get away with everything. It's weighed on Jacob. Jacob is, at this point, pretty much the moral centre of the film. I get the feeling Hank would never have done this. No, Hank would would never have said that. Oh, no. In fact, I think Hank, would you not have said Hank while Jacob's back was turned? If Jacob hadn't offered this up, if Jacob was just trying to pick up someone, Hank almost would have shot him in the back. Now, there's an interesting... Do you think? Do you think he would have? I think maybe he would have. I think it would have been a struggle. There is a possibility. Possibility. Because because when Jacob tells Hank to shoot him, Hank is obviously very torn up. He weeps. But how long does it take before he actually decides to shoot him? It's very quick. Is that that to kind of skip over the pain? Of course, yeah. Or is that because at this point, he's so far down this rabbit hole, he's so used to taking lives... It's almost just another one. Even though it's his brother, it's just another life he has to take. Okay, we've got a dead brother. We've got a dead Lou. We've got a dead Lou wife. Mm-hmm. We've got a dead sheriff. We've got a dead criminal. Oh, dead farmer. We've got a dead <laughs> farmer. But do you know what? Mm. It ends up the money is marked. Mm. There is all that, Wade. All that catastrophe, all that loss, all that death, and it finally finds out the money is marked. So the money was no good from the start. All this chaos of, all this harbinger of death, as you're saying, Wayne, it amounted to nothing. And what does it lead to? It leads to Hank taking the money, deciding this money's no good, and he burns the money. Here's the thing. He burns the money, that gets rid of it. It gets rid of the source of the problem, but does it get rid of the consequences? Hank and his wife have to live with this for the rest of their lives. I don't think Sarah cares. (laughs) She's like, don't burn the money. If she was a bit more three-dimensional character maybe yeah. they win but it's not like a, a confrontation where she tries to talk him out of it he just throws it on the fire and that's it gone so there goes the source of your problem but the consequences are going to live with them forever i i know it's been a long time Wayne, since you have read the book but yeah. can i ask you if you can remember in the book you know how they're saying the character of sarah was more fleshed out was she a little more three-dimensional? She was a little bit right. more, yes. She seemed to have more of a, a nurturing, caring side to her. Right. She did still encourage him, you know, maybe you should do this, maybe you should get the money, and she tries yeah. to. She does try to encourage him a lot more. But here, because we only get fragments, we only get snippets of their conversations, we don't find out a lot more about her. It's more of a three-way battle, this film. And I think because it focused on that, it fleshed those characters out more, Lou, Jacob, and Hank, much more than it fleshed her out. So in summation, Wayne, because it's a morality tale, because they chased the unobtainable, essentially everybody's ended up losing out. They've lost. Everybody's lost. Everybody, Jacob lost, Lou lost, Hank and Sarah have lost. 
Nobody, you, you don't win. There is no short gains win. No, like I say, greed will destroy us all. Greed will imprison us all. It was greed that drove them to do, to do this. It's destroyed their lives. There are people who are dead, and the people who are left behind, they have to live with the consequences. A detail I loved about this, which I never even thought of when I watched it the first time, at the very end, you have real FBI agents which come in and question Hank, and they're talking about the fake FBI agent, and they said, you know, did you notice any clear signs of lying? And they list <laughs> things like stilted or wooden toes, robotic gestures, shifty eyes, being unnecessarily expansive. Going back through the film, Hank did pretty much all of those. I love that great little detail. That's a good one. It's almost a line put there to make you watch the film again to see if you pick up on those second time rounds. It's essentially asserting that Hank was a liar the whole time. Basically, hey, you missed this. I mean, the unnecessarily expansive thing makes sense because when you're caught in a lie, you do get very kind of, oh, yeah, but this and uh, yeah, but kind of this over here. You do talk unnecessarily. That's the most obvious one to spot, I'd say, <laughs> when you're trying to, when you get caught in a lie. It was really good to rewatch this way. It I was. Think, yeah. I, I think this was probably the fourth or fifth time I've seen this. I forgot how much I liked it. I mean, the, I don't know about you, the first time I watched it, I think I was just channel surfing right. and I came across it. I'm like, simple plan. Oh, I've read that book. And that's what made me watch it. Enjoyed Here's it a- then, enjoyed it more now, I'd say. When you first saw it, did you always, you know, com- compare it to Fargo? Kind I of, always yeah. did. I this did, and yeah. Fargo always went hand in hand. And there was a period, I'm not going to say, I don't think now, there was a period when I actually preferred A Simple Plan to Fargo. I probably prefer Fargo now, but yeah, I like. I love both of them. They're great films. I wouldn't say any of them are kind of like... Yeah, they are too, completely different. Too close to each other because with the Fargo, you have a lot more of the kind of quirky sense right. of humour. This is a much more earthy morality tale. I mean, yes, there's a lot of that in Fargo as well, but it feels like two very different tones, similar settings, but very different tones. Ironically, Fargo seems a more Sam Raimi film. It kind, <laughs> it kind of does, in a week, like with the comical yeah. deaths and stuff, it does, yes. So what do you think? What, what are you saying? I think this is a really strong film, Wayne. It, it, it holds up tremendously. 98, so, it, you know, it's getting on in years. It doesn't show much wear. It holds up to repeated viewings. I think that's because the themes are timeless. Mm-hmm. It's one of those kind of things that we will always will always resonate, will always gravitate towards stories of morality and people being corrupted and people being brought down, pulled down from the pedestals, exactly. And because it's a simple film, it's not an action film. The action is there to facilitate the story. It's not built around big shootouts or gun battles or anything like this. It's just a, a character study with kind of injections of violence, some very sad Sam Raimi-esque. It's like a comparison we're going on about there. It's like, here's a weird comparison, okay? We have a simple plan, which is twisty-turny, you know, it unfolds. And there's a film called Secret Window, you know, with Johnny Depp. Yeah. Have you seen it? Uh, No, no. It's good, but once you have seen that, there is not much to revisit on the second time. Mm. Because the twist is so integral to the piece, once you know it, it's like, okay, I've seen that. It doesn't work so well the second time. But we have simple plan. It's twisty. It's turny. You you find the outcome at the end. But because it's so well drawn out, so because it's so well rendered, it holds up. Because as you said, the th- the themes of the film, the what it's trying to say. It's textured and layered in a way I didn't see in a in Secret Window, and I think that's why this holds up to repeated viewings. I think whether or not you know the plot beats, whether or not you know the twists, because it's not yeah. like there's one big third act no, twist or anything. Yeah. There's twists and turns as it go along. Whether you know those or not, I think watching this, you're still really going to enjoy it. Because this was a second time watch. You said about fourth or fifth yeah, year. Much. Second time watch. 
I enjoyed it actually even more this time because I was I was reading more into it. As I tend to do for this podcast, we read more into these films. You see a lot more little subtle details, notes in the directing and in the dialogue and in the presentation of everything. So I enjoyed this a lot more second time around. For me, very solid recommendation. I'd recommend the book as well. The book is also excellent. And that's a wrap for our second episode of 2023 and represents our first foray into the world of Sam Raimi. So join us next week where we discuss, dissect and deep dive all things film from the obscure to the mainstream.